America begins here. My guest today on the program once sang, so in the spirit of that number, the podcast begins here. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. What a lovely day for a walk in the park. What a lovely way to get lost in the dark. of the Bastards of Fine Arts, a band which features my guest today on the program, Matt Keating. Let me tell you a little bit about the Bastards of Fine Arts and Matt Keating. Matt Keating is one of those guys that every time he puts out a new album, I get excited. And for good reason. Since the early 90s, the New York-based singer-songwriter has been releasing some of the most captivating, moving, and powerful albums I've ever heard. Now, with close to 15 of them under his belt, it's hard to pick favorites because they're all so good. From Tell It to Yourself, to Tilt a Whirl, to Wrong Way Home, to Summer Tonight, I mean, you can pretty much just grab a Matt Keating album and prepare to swoon. It's hard for me to think of anyone who writes with such lyrical poignancy, observational smarts, and melodic finesse than Mr. Keating. And the fact is, he's been a personal favorite of mine for close to 30 years. His new band is called Bastards of Fine Arts, and it's a project he's helming with Steve Mayone, who's played with the Benders and Treat Her Right. Their new album, Good Sign, is a stone-cold instant classic. Songs like The Hardest Part bring to mind the Jayhawks. The rollicking Can't Get My Head Around It reminds me of, like, a mix of the replacements and the violent femmes, and Take the Fall is one of those infectious numbers you just can't get out of your head. The 14-song collection is a joyous and jangly blast of hook-laden indie pop, and I just love it. And I love this conversation, too. Here's me and Matt Keating having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Fourth of July, I always listen to Tilt a Whirl. Oh, cool! Right, 
and I was listening to it this this last Fourth of July, and I was like, "This is a really sad album." I I, I was like, "This is a really sad record," and I you know I love it so much. Um, I just didn't. I don't think I really realized until I got to a certain age just how sad of an album it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I get like uh, I sadder. My music gets sadder as I get as, it gets happier as I get older. Is that what happens? I don't know. I, I seem less. I remember I had a friend tell me that she would, she listened to my music. She was a fan and like, and she said one of her friends or her sister said, oh, play that record by the sad guy. <laughs> you're, you're the sad guy. The sad. Um, that you feel like it's punchier and happier as you're getting older. That's kind of cool. I've had a lot of stuff to work out, you know? I've had time to work it out, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people go to music well, like I did, and a lot of the people, my contemporaries, I know a lot of people, it was a place to work out their problems, you know, so it, it might sound really sad, but that's because that's where you're working stuff out. And, um, and you know, now I like to think that I've worked through a lot of stuff, so. Yeah, so happy is healthy. I think so. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, if it's real happy, if it's yeah. fake happy, it's not healthy. <laughs> Yeah, fake fake happy is not healthy. That'll be the title of this podcast, Matt. <laughs> okay, fake happy is not healthy. Yeah, fake happy is not healthy. Um, how have you how have you been? Uh, it's been a crazy couple. I mean, it's a loaded question these days, right? I mean, the last three years have been pretty intense. Um, I uh, you know, just especially the last two and a half. You know, the pandemic has hit a lot of people, especially here in New York. I know you ended up in Boston uh, for school. Am I wrong, though, in thinking that you're a Midwestern guy? I was born in the same hospital as Brian Wilson in Inglewood, California. And uh, and six months old, my family moved to uh, to the Midwest. My parents were from the Midwest, so they moved back there. And then we followed my dad's career. We went to uh, Boston, where I was there for a while. Then we moved to San Francisco, where I lived in Piedmont. And then we moved back to Boston. And then we moved to Pittsburgh, when I went, where I went to high school. And then I... Uh, left for college and kind of settled. I settled, I, I after college, I, I moved back to Boston for a number of years. I would say, I guess I was there for five years, um, mm. 85 to 90. And then I moved to New York in 90 and I've been here ever since. So you were in Boston during that sort of like amazing heyday of all those great Boston bands like Del Fuego, Scruffy the Cat, like the Neat. Totally. Were you yeah, part of that? My band used to play on bills with Scruffy the Cat. And you know, my first gig when I moved to New York was playing for a couple of months, I played keyboards with Dan Zanes. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so I, I, I knew that scene. My, I had a band there that we played with all those bands and we played all those venues and it was 85 to 90. I mean, that was the pocket. What was your band? We were called Circle Sky. We were, uh, we never got signed to a major. We did, we did uh, put out a well, we were named, the name might sound familiar because we named ourselves after a monkey song, which is uh, the, the, the Michael Nesmith monk from the movie Head. Uh, sure. Sky. And uh, we did get picked up by, there was this RCA CMJ 10 Best Unsigned Bands in America album that came out, like, I guess it was like 87 or 88, which we were on that. And uh, we, we did that. We, our big our big achievement was we got picked by Bowie to open for Tin Machine at the World in New York in 1989, which was a pretty cool thing. And then we broke up right after that. 
I mean, that's an amazing uh, way to go out. Right? <laughs> We've been together for a long time. We were like, you know, kind of high school band that like went to college together. And then we kind of like, uh, you know, we, we, we really, you know, paid our dues together for like, I guess we, yeah, 10 years, 10 years of nonstop gigging and rehearsing and everything. But it was back in those days where everyone was trying to get a deal and, um, you know, we, we came close, but it just sort of kind of, by the time things started happening for us, interpersonal stuff kind of made it too hard to continue. So I kind of parted ways. I moved to New York pretty soon. After. I went to Europe and uh, busked for like a year just to kind of pay some more dues. <laughs> and then I came back, yeah. came back to Boston and then moved, moved to New York and been here ever since. So college for you was Boston University or? No, I went to school in Ithaca, Ithaca College in, in Ithaca, New York. So did you know those guys like in Dump Truck? Did you know all those guys? And Yes, yes, totally. In fact, I'm still friends, very close friends with Kirk Swan. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I used to, you know, Sean, I used to run into him all the time in Boston and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, it seemed like there was a real confederacy. Kevin Salem was one of the first people I played with after the band broke up and he plays guitar on my first uh, album. Right, right. On the Tell It To Yourself album. Yeah, and he also plays on the McHappiness, which was the single of the second album. Yeah, that's you have one of my favorite lines anyone's ever written, which uh, which is the classic rock plays in all the ways I never grew up. I mean, holy oh, shit. <laughs> Thank you. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one of those lyrics you write and you go, oh, I'm happy I wrote that. And, you know, and it was one of those when you would play it live, you would see people kind of go, uh-huh. I mean, because, well, our, you seem like you're sort of in the general vicinity of my age group. We can yeah. relate to that, you know. Oh, yeah. I became aware of you with the alias, the solo album, with Tell It To Yourself. I had just finished college, and I remember thinking, like, very first song, well, there's a hit. Second song, there's a hit. Third song, there's a hit. Like, to me, that was, like, as good as anything Joe Jackson or Elvis Costello or the Counting Crows at the time around here were doing. It was punchy, it was poppy, it was amazing. That's um, funny, that's what I thought too. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and it's interesting. And then you put it, it out, you're like, this is a hit. And then you put it out and you're like, oh, I guess it's not a hit. I guess it's not a hit, but it seemed like it was really in the pocket at the time of what was going on. Um, well, but the I think a little behind, I think that's what it, well, it was a little ahead of its time in one way and a little behind its time in another, because there was this weird, it was in 93 that it came out and yeah. it was right in the height of the grunge thing. And I purposefully kind of decided to like go against the grain and boost my vocals and have more clean guitars and, and, and harmony, you know, it was a little bit more hearkening back to more of like a 70s thing yeah. it, or a late 70s, early 80s thing and, and a singer-songwriter record at a time when things were very like grunge and like there weren't, in fact, like singer-songwriter was like a dirty word at that time. I remember the label kind of like, don't be a singer-songwriter, be alternative rock, you know. Like, <laughs> well, whatever. But that album has some snarl to it. Like it's a good, it's got muscle. It's a. It's oh yeah, a, totally. I mean, because yeah, we were, yeah, we were influenced by that stuff. And like, I mean, my band, my band opened once for the Pixies in in Boston. You know, I mean, like I was 
there for like the kind of the the birth of a lot of that. It's really funny. I was talking to, I did another podcast interview recently and we were just talking, this guy's from Boston. And I remember at that time, grunge, it wasn't the grunge, it was the word was grungy. Mm-hmm. Like, and people said, oh, I like it. It's grungy, you know? And all that meant was guitars were like boosted way up and vocals were down. And it was kind of like a lot of feedback squeal and stuff you know and you know and so uh so I kind of but we you know I but my heart was always in more earlier music and um you know and I I was open to that way of doing it but I've always felt like the song should kind of rule you know it should always be supreme reign supreme you know well alias was a weird label because i I bought your album because it was on Alias because I really trusted what Alias was doing. They'd put out that Everclear record by American Music Club. Yeah, yeah. Right. They put out the Milo Binder record, which I really liked. They had um, Knapsack. They had some really cool stuff Um, and Too Much Joy and The Sneetches. And so there was, even though those bands are all different, there was a real feel to what Alias was doing. But did they try to get you into like a 12 album deal? Because that was what they used to do, that label. Uh, yeah, well, it's kind of funny you said that, you know, the, remember their motto was none of our bands suck. <laughs> I had the t-shirt. I used to wear the t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the the woman, Delight Jenkins, who, well, she's now changed her name since then. But uh, she, you know, she signed all the bands and she, you know, she kind of prided herself on knowing what was good. She liked, you know, she was kind of separate from style. It was more substantive she was like this this is good this is good this is good I'll, I'll sign these and you know and I mean there was a certain stylistic thing but it was a little more eclectic than other things and um at the time um yes that was a whole other story that deal was pretty weird I I had a I had an entertainment lawyer <laughs> should I get into the dirt of the I mean it's so irrelevant now it really no one cares anymore but at the time it was kind of funny because there was this kind of notoriously annoying lawyer with like a serious drinking problem. <laughs> like, you know, uh, he kind of represented me, came to me, he's like, I can get you a deal. And then, you know, he brought me, brought Alias to see me play like the CMJ Music Marathon. And then he's like, I got, they want to sign you. I'm, he's like, I'm doing an amazing job working out your deal, uh, you know? And then, you know, I signed the deal. And then like the next day he was like, well, I got, I got good news. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, he said, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is I can't be your lawyer anymore because the good news is I'm now your A&R man. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> he was like, yeah, she was so impressed with the work I did on your contract. She hired me. And now I'm like, and then he turned into like, a, he was like a, a, one of the like a and r man from hell like it was like the guy like got me signed and then he would like call me drunk at three in the morning like where's the tour where's the gigs well i was like what the fuck yeah that was pretty wild so he like called you and said i got some good news for you i got a new job yeah i'm working i'm i i got a job hired by the label that that, that i negotiated your deal with that's so funny had you ever thought about um the idea of because the singer songwriter thing at the time wasn't like in vogue yeah. did you think like oh i really should have a band under be under a band name or was like it was consciously you wanted to not do that well you know it kind of 
everything that I did was purely kind of by the seat of my pants. I really didn't know what I was doing. I just basically, I had been in this band for many years and the plan was that, that we were gonna be like rock stars. Like that was like, the, that was like my, my retirement plan when I was like 20. You know? Sure, it's <laughs> a good plan. Right, so we worked hard and when that fell apart, I, I had this, I, you know, I always kind of lived in a weird kind of like Hollywood movie fantasy. And it, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I guess I'll be, I'm, I wanna be one of those guys who writes song, songs for like band. I wanna be like a hit songwriter, like who writes songs for other artists. So like, which was like happened in the sixties and you know, but in the seventies, but it was like the Brill building. And then, and then that didn't like, that wasn't happening. So I just kept writing and then, you know, different friends would record me. And then, so it would be like, well, what, what name is this going on? I was like, what's my name, you know? So I don't know if you know this guy, Adam Lassis, uh, Studio Red. He was, he has a studio in LA now, but he used to have a studio in Philly. And I got hooked in with him through the dump truck people. And um, he had worked with them and, uh, and Kevin and, and um, a few other people from that era. And, uh, and he just had me in, we record, we started recording, we hit it off and it just kind of, came together and so we put together a bunch of stuff and really like, actually, you know, this is really funny. I'll tell this story. Cause this is like, I tell this to my dog. I tell this to people like the idea of like kind of believing in yourself and stuff. Like I was pretty like, kind of like a, you know your typical like self-sabotaging like rock fan, you know? And but I don't know what got into me this one time I was at, I think it was at like the new music seminar at the Knitting Factory. And I think I was, see, I, I remember completely cause I went to see the Gigolo Ants. Mm. I ended up being at, on Alias later. And there, right. was this, there was this guy there and he seemed kind of nuts and drunk. And, and he was like, have you seen anything good during the seminar? I went, oh yeah. And I had my tape. And I said, oh, it's this guy, this guy, that, or have you heard anything? I'm like, I got this tape from this guy and it's like the best thing I've heard like in years. And he was like, really, let me have it. And then, and that was that crazy lawyer who got me that, he called me the next day and he's like, somebody handed me your tape and it's like <laughs> <laughs> the best thing I've ever, you know? And I was like, I can't believe that worked. I was sort of in shock, but like, yeah. So that's how that happened. That's weird. I don't know what was your question. I could maybe I <laughs> no. I mean you, but it sounds to me like oh, you were asking me if I wanted to call myself a fan. So at that point, it it was what it was, and I think he did say, you know, you should have a band name, and I just really didn't, you know, what should I be like, desk or plaid or I don't know. All the names were like one syllable, like things at that time, and I I kind of like. Uh, you know, when I, I started thinking about bands that were bands and then they broke up and then it was always about that one person, you know, and I thought, well, it's going to end up being that I'm putting out solo records at some point anyway, so I might as well just jump the gun, which is kind of ironic because now I'm putting something out under a band name for the yeah. first many years. So, but that's a whole other story, which I'd like to talk about if we can, but yeah. Oh, for sure we will. Yeah, I was going to make the point. I was going to circle around and say that like after all these years, you finally... <laughs> You finally have a band again, which yeah. is really, which is really kind of an interesting thing. And was that something? I want to talk about that partnership that you that you have, um, and the idea that you didn't put it out as just the two of your names. You decided to make a band. And so, what does that feel like after all these years of of 
um, of being the solo guy? Well, so what happened was, you know, my whole thing, that record came out in 93 uh, with Alias. And then I put out three, you asked if they wanted like a 13 record. I don't know what happened, but I, it might've been a longer deal. And I probably, you know, now that I look back, I'm like, yeah, uh, why not? You know what I mean? Like people would kill for those deals from that time, but everyone was acting like it was like such a bad deal, but the advances were good and they gave tour support and there was a lot of good stuff about the label. And you know, and I mean, there were problems too, but, but, you know, there were, you know, there were good things. And so I put out three albums through them and it's kind of funny because as the label was folding, all these people were like, you better not do another record with them, man. It'll be the end of your career. You know, like they, they're really ruining your career. Like I, I just got, there were a lot of people around me telling me different things and and I remember the president of the label saying, you know, you have an option for another record. You should, I, I would suggest you take it. And, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. And then I didn't. And like, it turns out like something was going down where the label was folding. And if I had taken that, I would have gotten even more money to, to get another record made and pushed. Mm. But instead I kind of didn't. And then I let it kind of go. And then, you know, that was the late nineties and, uh, and so what happened was that my manager at the time, uh, I had this manager who was like, he was like, I'm going to fund you to make a record and, and we'll put it out ourselves. So, or we'll, we'll do something else. So he actually, that was Tilt to World. So he funded okay. Yeah. So we, I made that and I suddenly, I tried it with a different producer. I ended up going with, um, it was actually the, the Fountains of Wayne guys. Do you know Fountains of Wayne? Sure. Um, yeah, as a, a shame, but Adam, you know, was oh. the first friend of, of mine to, you know, old acquaintance of mine to, you know, pass from COVID. It really, it, and it's when I had COVID. So I was like sick with a fever and reading about this. And I saw him that he was in the hospital and it seemed like he was going to be okay. And then I heard he died and it just really hit me. It was anyway. So he, he was one of the first people I met, I was introduced to in New York, who got me some gigs and he and I ran into him and Chris, his partner, like right after that time. And I said I was looking for a producer. They're like, no, you just need a really good engineer. This guy, Gary Maurer, they gave me his name. So I called him and then he was, I don't know, in this band, Hem. I don't know if you remember the band Hem. I do actually, yeah. Yeah, that was his band. He went on with that. But he he was a great engineer producer and he ended up recording Tilt a Whirl with me and um, here in New York. And then... I sent it to this guy I knew in England and then he gave it to Alan McGee, you know, from, you know, uh, uh, you know, creation, creation, but later it was, it had become pop tones. He started another label called pop. Right, right, right. And they agreed to put that out. So I was like, Oh, cool. And then, um, so I put that out and literally things were really going really well with that for the first time really in my life they flew me to london i i got featured in like the london times and independent and like i was like played the 12 bar there was a line around the block it was like super cool like seemed like things were coming together and i took me out to lunch they're like we're gonna fly you to japan we're gonna do all this shit and then i got back on uh september 7th 2001 <laughs> to new york <laughs> it was like four days later you know that was that and then very much like COVID, you know, it was just sort of like everything just went kaput, you know, for like a, a couple of, like a year. But I got fixated on putting out in America because they only put it out 
everywhere except America. So then I got that label Future Farmer. Yeah. From San Francisco to yeah. put, it, put it out in America. So then they put it out. I'm giving you this whole like history. No, this is great. This is, but, this is great. Yeah. So then they, they, they put it out. And that was that, and that was the 2002, 2003. Then this manager started a label and we recorded another record and then, uh, and then another record. <laughs> and I just started putting them out myself. And, uh, but I would always get like some label would pick it up. There would uh, like, you know, I could always find somebody to do something with it. And then, um, I don't know, we're somewhere along the line I started and I would do these solo tours, you know, by myself playing solo acoustic. Somewhere along the line, it just started to kind of be a drag. And I was like, hmm. I'm like going into another venue, like by myself, like having to, you know, find a hotel by myself, like eat dinner by myself, <laughs> like doing these shows. After many years, they, whenever I would tour or do anything, it became very isolating and it kind of, it started to just not be fun. And I was like, well, screw this. You know, I don't know what to, but, I, but this is what I do. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And then ironically, it's kind of a weird story, but I, I met a couple of people from Boston. And one was this guy who was a guitarist who was living in Berlin at the time. And his name was Alan Devine. And he, um, he was living in New York for a couple of months, uh, scoping it out, maybe moving. He was from Boston, but had been living in Berlin and was married to a German woman. And he was thinking of coming to New York. So, and he was here for a couple of months. So we just started getting together and playing. And it was really nice to have, some, he like wanted to get together. He was like, New York is so like, where's the gig? It's sort of like, you know, Boston was more like, oh, you write songs, you want to play, you know, other cities are maybe like that, but New York is very like, where's the gig? where's the deal, what's going on? Like no kind of hanging out playing kind of thing. And this was kind of refreshing to me and we had a really nice time. And then he booked me a tour in Germany and I went there and at the time he was telling me about this band he was playing in Boston with somebody and he got me on a gig and there was this other guitarist in the band. It was like a Beatle cover band or something. And there was like really good and like, um, and there was this guitarist in the band who I saw and I'm like, wow, that guy's really, he's great, you know? and um, it's long story short, that guy, I ended up, I got invited to a party at Ringo Starr's uh, publicist house. <laughs> and, and like, and he was there, this other guy. And then we started talking and he's like from Boston and we're like, you know, are you in a band, blah, blah, blah. I said, do you know Alan Devine? He goes, I play in a band with him. And I'm like, oh yeah, oh, oh my God. Like, and it totally, so then I went to Germany and did this tour with Alan. He was trying to get me to move to Berlin. And, um, and I was thinking about it because New York got really expensive at that time. And, and he had put together a tour and it was fun. And then I was thinking going there and then I got a call from him. He got diagnosed with cancer and he, he ended up being dead within three months. And it really, and it really messed with me. And at the same time, I had started getting together with Steve, Steve Mayone was the other guy I was talking about. So we started just playing together and getting together pretty regularly. And, um, and we just found that we come from a very similar musical background. Um, we like to joke that we were like, I mean, everyone's always sort of raised on the Beatles, but we have this weird sub 
influence, which is solo Beatles records, which <laughs> not many people like grew up on solo Beatles records. In fact, like most people are ashamed to admit it, but we kind of really like bonded on that. And of course the other influences like the band and Big Star and stuff like that, but, and RBQ. Um, and we just, and at that time I'd had a band, my own band, um, around New York with a bass player who plays with Ron Sexsmith named Jason Mercer and um, and a drummer who actually was touring in Nor with Nora Jones for a while. And now he's out with this woman, Valerie Jean. And, um, and we just started like booking gigs and, and then playing and, you know, it was like, I think what happened was first Steve sort of joined my band and then I think he even said he wanted like, can I audition for your band? And I was like, and then hearing him, I was like, and he played me some of his songs and I kind of was like, you know, let's just have a band. Like, I don't, I don't want it to be my thing anymore. You know, like, let's just do it like this. And then we started getting together. And then at the same time, my, you know, and I started doing a mental trip of like how to approach it, which was from my old school thing of like, okay, we'll like rehearse and do gigs and we'll write songs and then we'll pick the 10 best and like somewhere in the next 10 years we'll release it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. You know what I mean? And then we'll yeah. hire like a publicist and we'll get five reviews that are five star and no one will buy any records. <laughs> <laughs> and, then we'll hope, and we'll hope that some TV show will put a song in. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was sort sure. of like kind of at that point like what? And then my daughter was like teenager and she's like dad why don't you just put up your songs on like social media like at the time it was facebook and so we're like okay so we were we were getting together once a week writing and we just wrote a song and said let's put it up and we did and people really re we were kind of amazed well you know the whole thing with you know native media and non-native media right you know about yeah you know about that so you, you learn quickly when you're trying to promote stuff on social media, like especially Facebook, like if uh, Facebook, you know, it's kind of been taken over by TikTok is more what, right. what's happening with that now. But at that time, it was like when Facebook was kind of like the most engaged uh, social media engine. And, you know, you'd have that experience of posting a link to one of your videos and like getting two likes and you're like, I must really suck. And then you find out like, oh, like, Facebook has an algorithm that doesn't favor non-native links. So if you, but if you record the video on your phone and then directly upload it to Facebook, suddenly it shows up in everybody's, you know what I mean? So right. I was like, and it was sort of like <laughs> subterraneously hiring a really good publicist who had like access to all these, you know what I mean? And I already had a pretty good friend group from just being on there. And so we just, it became like a weekly thing and we put up a new song we, we called it new song forward friday and we just put up a song every friday and it, it's end up we've been doing it for five years and it's like and it was so cool to just kind of feel like you're engaged even you know it, it nothing went viral crazy viral, but but some of our videos would go into the thousands and share and and you know a lot of comments and a, and a real engagement and people contact hey when's there going to be an album or Oh shit, did I lose you? No, no, no. Uh, and, uh, you know, and people started engaging with it and sharing with it. And it felt like there was kind of an audience and we didn't have to leave 
the apartment, you know? And um, after many years of like touring and playing shows for like $50 and right. <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of like a nice thing, especially as you get older. And um, so we did that and we just kept going and we got kind of like fueled and by it. And then, so we started to, to make this record and we, uh, we started making it. And uh, I guess like around three years ago, and then my mom, right in the middle of it, my mom got diagnosed with cancer and my dad had had a stroke and, uh, and they're in California, they're in the desert, the Palm Springs. And, um, and uh, so I suddenly had to go there and help care for my mom a lot that year, 2019. And because my dad had, was paralyzed from stroke and then so everything got kind of waylaid and then the pandemic hit and it was like, we couldn't get together anymore and we couldn't really, we were in the middle of this record. And anyway, long story short, it ended up extending it. So we started it like three years ago and we just finished it and, uh, and now we're getting it out. So, uh, but, but it's been a weird, it's been a long, strange trip, right? Yeah, I mean, did you and Steve travel in the same circles in Boston? You know, we, I think we, we've talked about it and I think it was kind of peripheral. It was like, a, um, we were there at similar times and yeah. yet we realized we must've been on the same bills, but we just didn't know it. Like he was in a band. Um, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of it. I, sh I should have that at my disposal, but, um, but um, he'd been in a number of bands and, and, you know, I had this band Circle Sky and I guess we, we played, but we kind of, it was kind of one of those things that we should have known each other. And yeah, maybe if we'd met, he would have been in our band or something. I don't know, but it was kind of a, when we met, it was the right time. And because we, we sort of have a, you know, we both kind of like a lot of the same music and, and we have very similar musical instincts, but we also at the same time, I feel like we have certain strengths and, my strengths, I think, uh, well, you know, my weaknesses are his strengths and vice versa. I feel like he's a really great guitar player and um, has, a, has a great voice and, um, you know, has a, a really unique look, uh, songwriting perspective, which kind of counterbalances mine. My wife always says that it's sort of like my songs. She said, I'm a, I'm a generally very optimistic person, but my songs are very pessimistic and dark <laughs> and kind of like, really just kind of negative and then and then Steve has this very kind of positivities to him so it's kind of a nice it, when we get together it kind of seems to there's a kind of a complimentary feeling you know yeah I mean you are the author of the song Man Overboard so exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah yes. they ask so many questions you just can't keep up they got no idea you're making it up Just to placate them for a moment of peace And if you berate them, you'll get none at least And then they grow
especially when you like what they do. That apple don't fall too far from the tree, but this one is rolling away from me. Kids, they grow. have been at the same shows when you were going to go see bands play I mean at the very least yeah we probably we probably were you know he had he had been all over the country I think he for a while or he, he worked at uh you know Electric Lady I no no I mean not not Electric Lady uh, the, the studio the Prince studio in Minneapolis up in Paisley Park Paisley. Oh, Paisley Park yeah yeah yeah, yeah so interesting. He traveled a lot and, you know and I had airplay in, in Minneapolis you know with with my second record, there was a great station there, Rev 105. I don't know if you remember that, but um, vaguely, yeah, yeah. So there were like these weird kind of things at the same time, but we kind of really were kind of unaware of each other, and you know, and now we're like at that age where it's like you know we're both, you know, he has actually young children, and I have, uh, you know, my daughter's 25 now, so he's kind of like in that crucible of you know, like young children, but you know we we can't really commit more than like a day a week to it, you know, but, but just that consistent day, day a week for a number of time, you, you start to put together, we're like, we have a backlog of a couple hundred songs. Yeah. I mean, and, that's almost and, more than, than some bands have their entire career. 
Right, and they're all up there to be found. Like, if, you know, if you want to find them, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And so even this, it's funny, this record, we started it like years ago. So a lot, a lot of these songs are the first songs that we that we wrote together and that uh, on this record and, um, you know, that kind of the backbone of our live show. Um, but, you know, it's weird. You'll just keep moving. It's really nice. You, you feel that feeling just, even if it's on a small level, I think all artists want to have some kind of feeling of connection with an audience. And I realize it really doesn't matter how big it is, just a feeling that you put it out and that it's connected. And then, and it, there is some, if you're a songwriter, like creating something and then moving on rather than having to be stuck on it. You know? mm. It kind of helps you grow artistically, I think. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, and also, you know, going back to what you were saying about the idea of when it was just you and it was you in a hotel and it was you eating dinner by yourself and it was you traveling alone. Was it augmented by the fact that you had a young family at home and that you did that? Did that make it worse knowing that like, hey, I got two people at home who I'm not with right now, too. I'm not with anybody. Yeah, yeah, that. That definitely had a lot to do with it. And, and it's not like I was touring all the time because I wasn't, but right. I, I, did, I did put a num you know, a good amount of time to, into each release to try to you know, promote it and stuff and, and to get out there. But, um, but it, was, it was pretty, you know, um, I guess I was recording Tilt a Whirl when Greta, who's now 25, I mean, she was like you know, two or three or something. It's hard to believe, you know, but I remember like being at the studio and getting the call. She's a fever of like 104, you know, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm, trying, I'm just about to do a vocal. Like, <laughs> that's why I sound really depressed. <laughs> yeah. you know. But she plays music. And do you guys play together? Uh, we do, actually. You know, we've always played together. Um, I recorded a bunch of her songs as she's been growing up at my home studio. And, um, you know, at a certain point, she was like, Hey, I'll record that. She's like, yeah, thanks, Dad. But you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just rather do it with people my age, you know, and uh, which is fine. And um, but she, um, yeah, she's got a couple things out, and you know, she's been, you know, she play, she's been playing out in New York for like since she was like a young, like teenager, thirteen. You're you're pretty prolific in the sense that like you don't whether it's whether it's. 9-11 or COVID or illness, you keep going. You're, you're sort of a workhorse of, right? Like you just, you, the art just keeps coming. I, I, were there times in your life where it was like, I haven't picked up the guitar in a year? It doesn't seem like it to me. Uh, I would say there was this period right before my alias deal was the closest I came to just quitting. And I guess I, it was when I first moved to New York and I kind of had to just, I was kind of a mess and um, I kind of had to get my shit together. And I just decided to not pressure myself. You know what had happened is I, I had recorded a bunch of, I recorded this stuff with Adam, the demos that got me my record deal. And I think I remember saying, like I was, I sent it out to like one music festival, you know, to maybe get a gig in like Philadelphia or something. And they like rejected me. And I was like, so, heartbroken that I said like I'm done I can't do this anymore <laughs> That's it. and I was like I'm done so like I just and I got this job at the museum the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I just took a year where I just kind of like I'm not gonna pressure myself to write or achieve anything I'm just gonna like live and see what happens 
And after about a year of doing that, like it magically kind of everything kind of came together and I, I had a record deal and then I, my record was out within a couple of months. It was really weird. And so maybe I should stop for another year. <laughs> right. right. Just say, as soon as you say, fuck this, then it all comes together. Right. Right. Maybe I should, maybe like, maybe I'm like hearing myself what I need, but I kind of, you know, I guess during COVID, I got it pretty bad. I got it at the beginning in March. You know, I became symptomatic March 13th, Friday wow. the 13th of, of 20. And I developed a weird heart arrhythmia and I developed all these weird health problems that kind of, they call it now long COVID, but at the time everyone was like, you're just anxious, man. And I'm like, <laughs> so now, and I'm like, no, I've been anxious my whole life. I know what anxious is. This isn't anxious. This is anxious for a reason. Before it was just anxious. <laughs> now it counts. Now, now I really should be anxious. No, now I want you to listen to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, every ignore everything I set up until now. Yeah. There's no reason to be anxious. Forget the other well, stuff. In any way, you know. Are you are you do you feel like are you do you still feel the effects of that? Like do you still feel like yeah, a weird I still I mean I generally am better now after a lot of like lifestyle changes and you know a lot of like work like you know on my health and um and time but you know, there are times when my heart will just do a little flutter that it never used to do before. It's just a weird thing and I can't explain it. I, nobody really can explain it. I don't think the jury's out on what it does to you, but it, it definitely did something weird because I did not feel normal for like two years. And um, I finally feel kind of like, you know, that was a lot of it too. I had to just completely just check out and, um, yeah. you know, and, and just not, but but I you couldn't leave. I couldn't I couldn't play a show though. I'm still wondering. Like I have we have a couple shows booked and suddenly there's another surge in New York. And I'm like, really? Like what, what is going on? So I, I don't really know. I really I know the live stream concerts actually all through the pandemic. That was those bad. are better, right? Those are easier because you don't have to Yeah. I mean, the thing is now, I mean, you know, they're calling it the ninja variant now which is sort of like if you weren't afraid but of ba.39 <laughs> you know, we'll do the do the trick you know but you know there is something to be said about because you know, i teach and it's like you know i look at my students and i go they're all they're college students and they're always sick because they live so on you remember living yeah. in college like you're probably at your least healthy when you were in college right it's like yes, exactly take care of yourself so there's a general with our you know there's a general fear of that but were you, did you feel supported by your family when you were like, you left call after college, you were like, I'm going to graduate and then embark on this musical artistic career. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was basically like, they were like, yeah, my dad was sort of like, you need to, you need to, you know, that's great. You're gonna be a musician, but you need a backup plan. And I was like, I do have a backup plan. And he's like, what is it? And I'm like, poet. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed and he went stick to the music <laughs> you know I, I just had a bizarre way of dealing with it but no I mean yeah I mean it's complicated with that stuff you know it's like you know people of our parents generation you know it was always like they were just taught to be so practical you know but but now that I look back on it it you know it wasn't very practical now, if you look at like a lot of people who 
got jobs with corporations and then like got fired and their pension yanked and their health insurance, yeah. you know, and basically, you know, and I, I've developed a weird way to kind of like all these kind of streams of income. Like I teach music and I record people and I get songs in like, you know, media like film and TV and stuff. And, you know, you just, you start to learn all the different ways you can, you know, do it. And, uh, and I mean, obviously I'm a popper, I'm, I'm an artist, so I'm like not, you know, I don't take vacations. I don't have like, you know, I don't have a car. <laughs> I'm in New York City because I don't yeah. need a car. You know, I can get by on very little and it's, you know, um, but it's harder and harder to do that. But, um, but I don't know if I would have traded it for anything. I mean, I tried very, you know, when I was younger, I would do the, the due diligence. And when I lived in Boston, I always had like office jobs and was in the band, practiced all night, woke up, you know, did the gig, hung over the next day, showing up at the office and making copies. And, you know, when I like, at a certain point I burned out in Boston, you know, in Boston, that's what happened. When I came to New York, I just saw, I saw too many people who were artists and like, were figuring out some way of doing it. And I was like, you know what, I, I can't. <laughs> I gotta do this figure some I mean and lo and behold I got a deal pretty quickly so you know well you have so many songs when you write do you think like I always wonder this do you do you sort of say to your wife like hey I have another one and she's like oh my god another one like you have so many songs like do you who is your editorial um who's on your editorial team or do you are you seasoned enough where you go I know if that's up to snuff or not well okay I kind of have a self-editorial process based on so it seems like I have a lot of songs but to me I don't have that many songs and I because I what I have mostly are a lot of musical ideas and nonsensical and, and I think if you talk to most songwriters they would say this like uh, a lot of like blah, 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 mumbling, but a really good hook or a, you know, like, and then this, you know, and you've got it all like mapped out, but you're like, but where are the really good lyrics, you know? And you're like, and that's the one thing you can't force. Like you can't force good, you just have to like be patient. Right. And hope that one of these musical pieces will develop a lyrical thing. And that's always been my thing is if I feel like, the lyrics do come and I know what it's about and it's a thing and it's a real song with lyrics and stuff, then I'll put it, then I'll, you know, record it. And if, and if, and if it still strikes me some way as good on some level, some kind of connection emotionally to it when I hear it, then I'll put it out. And um, I mean, we have these kind of levels of editorial with our own stuff. And so um, I think like with, with Steve and I, we kind of relaxed that a little bit because we just be like, well, we just wrote it. Let's sometimes we'll like, let's sit on that one a little bit long. We'll work on like three or four and then one will seem finished. So we'll put that up. And, um, but yeah, and there's like a lyric here or there to change. Um, but honestly, I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with like opening up to an access of like a lot of a lot of music and putting it out. I've been watching the Dylan No Direction Home again for the mm. last days, and I'm just kind of like, he was on that thing where it just 
was just like bubbling through, you know? And um, I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true that he writes like a song a day and that, you know, and then he basically like at the end of a year has like, you know, 365 songs or something like that. And then he'll record maybe 10% of them he'll like, and he'll like record 36 songs. And then of those like 12 will be, be good in his opinion, he'll put them on the record. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of him sitting around there. Lizzle, lizzle, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no. Like, yeah, I, I, they were saying on this thing that, like, I guess, uh, like a Rolling Stone, there were originally 50 verses. <laughs> I heard that. I, I've heard that about a couple of songs. Also, I heard that about Tangle Up in Blue, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you get into a groove and the lyrics start coming. And that, I think that's really what defines it for me as lyrics, really, because, you know, music like maybe when I was younger I would let things out that the lyrically I thought were weak but like I felt like I had a cool riff or something like that but now I'm just like there's not a real point with that I mean it depends on what you're doing like with this new record there were some things that were definitely more like kind of a vibey kind of a style I was trying to do that that felt right and but still like the lyrics the phrasing felt right you know do you feel that with that with this band that you almost feel like looser, like you're like, there's no pressure. You're just sort of like yeah, going definitely. for the fence every yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, I think I got to a point in my life, like I'll be 59 next month, you know? And I'm like, you know, you reach this certain point as a musician and you're still doing it and you're with these other people and they're still doing it and you're that yeah. age. And then you're like, oh, we don't need to rehearse. Like, you're just sort of like, if we don't know how to do this by now, like we should quit. Because it's like, I mean, you just sort of have to feel like you're, that you have some instinctive ideas about what to do. And, you know, I don't know, some people might not like, you know, or might be like, oh, what you did 30 years ago is better or whatever, or, you know, I don't really know. All I know is that it just feels better to be, you know, playing with somebody who, um, who has that harmony right there, just the right one and that guitar lick and that, and that lyric that, you know, when we write lyrics together, it just, it flows. Sometimes we get into a zone where we kind of know what we're doing. I mean, not to say that sometimes we'll be like, no, that's, that doesn't work at all. But like, but we really don't have bad writing sessions. It's really uh, for us and we're, we're having fun. So that, I mean, that, that's a big part of it. And I think when I was younger, I was a little more serious and dedicated to the idea of, like a, a level of greatness or something that is like, you know, is, is beyond fun. Like how could it possibly be fun? You know what I mean? But I really do think most, a lot of the stuff that I really like, you, there is a sense of fun to it, even if it's really seriously depressed music. <laughs> well, I, I know I, I was thinking about how the idea that, you know, you're in, you're in a band for, for close to 10 years, then you do this by yourself for so long. And then collaborating with Steve, you, the worry would have been you were so set in your ways that you wouldn't have been a good collaborative partner. But it's turned out the opposite way, that you weren't set in your ways at all. It's almost like a collaborative partner, a good musical foil um, was the exact thing you needed, right? To sort of like yeah. unlock. Definitely, because I, I think, first of all, I think that I did develop good collaborative skills from that band originally. And then, and then my, my solo bands, like I had, I had bands and I had people I was collaborating with and Adam, it was a 
produced it and he was a member of my band and I collaborated a lot. So there's always a collaborative moment, but I never had like a co-writer mm. there, like who's, you know, who brought in his own songs. But I'd also started, you know, about 20 years ago, I started teaching and then producing and then beside being a side guy for people. So I kind of developed this side. I'm a, you know, and I delved into piano, my piano study a lot deeper. And um, so I've, I've always kind of prided myself on being a good side musician, even if I was being a side musician to myself in the studio, like I know how to work around the vocal and not, you know, and, and these things. So I get a lot of satisfaction out of supporting another songwriter, especially one that I really respect and really like. And so to me, it just felt like uh, in, in every way, like uh, kind of freeing. And I think maybe the issue the other time was when you're young and you have a band, everyone's going, you're like, wait, who's gonna be the one who gets to have a solo career? You know what I mean? Like, like under their breath, they're thinking like, you know, right. wait, who's the one who's like, the, like, you know, am I gonna be like the Bowie or am I gonna be like, you know, like, you know, you're just wondering. And I think everyone's kind of a little concerned about their own abilities because they're so dependent on the other band members. And I think to go out then and make 10 albums and be on five labels and tour and do all this shit, I basically found out what I'm capable of, you know, and I, and I know, and um, I mean, as a, as a solo, I, as a solo artist, I kind of know where it's at. And um, yeah, you know, your strengths, not to say I know exactly what I'm going to do or whatever, but I, I don't have any wondering anymore about whether I have the ability to make a record that, that I like, you know what I'm saying? So that's kind of a, I think that's been kind of decided. So now I'm, I feel more willing to share, you know, share the whole thing, you know? And yeah, like I said, it's not like it was then where like we all hang out together every night and get drunk and like talk about our band and like, <laughs> you know, we just basically get together once a week and bring our song ideas and have a really great sympathetic ear to help us finish it. And I mean, even if some of those, you know, end up on prospective solo albums or whatever, it doesn't, you know, it's just sort of like this kind of idea of giving it a band name just felt like, you know, um, it felt fun. And I, I mean, I guess it does feel a little weird because when I send it to people, I think maybe they wonder like, oh, well, who's this band? I've never heard of them, but I kind of don't care. <laughs> right. And it's also cool that you that you have sort of you know, you cultivate your strengths and then because for me as a writer I know what I can't do so I don't bother with it and I know what I do well so I played I play to that uh, I mean of course the danger is that you you know I I wonder sometimes I'm just doing the same thing over and over again but I'm getting pretty good at it and so I feel like let's just stay in the pocket where I know I'm comfortable um, and avoid the other stuff. And yeah. I think there's a certain power in that because then you you know when you're younger you tend to not know that as well and you try a bunch of stuff that sometimes can can waste time you know yeah yeah definitely I mean you know I think we're all just kind of feeling our way in the dark and and I I you know there's definitely like like you brought up earlier like did you get support for like there you know it hits me so much lately how dependent our depraved culture is on art and artistic expression of all sorts. And at the same time, it's almost like we sacrifice them like sacrificial lambs. We're like, I hope you don't think you're gonna be creative in your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, right. you know, th there's this dueling thing. Like, 
nothing's more important than art. And then at the same time, oh, the starving artist needs a, you know, needs a guarantee for his gig. Like, you know, and there's just like this very weird, like S&M thing going on with it. And I, and it's definitely an American thing. Cause like when I've toured over in Europe, like I, my, my, my joke is always like, when you tour in Europe, it's like, we pass the hat in addition to the guarantee and you, will, and you have 1000 euros and there was a, a, a hotel above the venue and we will bring you and you can eat whatever you'd like in the restaurant. And I'm very sorry, it's not enough. And like, and then in America, it's like, you can pass the hat, <laughs> Motel 6 down the street and fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it ends. Right? Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting some water. It's a little hot, but no, no. I like how you went out on the "fuck you." That was good. Um, <laughs> I hope that's a it's a family friendly podcast. But oh yeah, oh very much. But you, you know, know you know what I'm saying. I, I do. I, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember out here the Oakland A's signed this pitcher, and I didn't recognize his name, but I looked at his stats. He was six and nine in 2012. This is this is years ago. And they signed him to a three-year contract uh, of $7.5 million, right? After having gone six and nine, that was his best year. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, like, that's more money probably than the replacements ever made in an entire career, you know, or something like that, or, or a band like Big Dipper or a band like Dump Truck. Like, it just seemed to me so unfair yeah. that the, in, in America at least, how much money average sports people make compared to um you know like i wonder sometimes like is paul westerberg all right like does he have enough money is he doing okay probably is i don't really know he's probably doing all right based on uh, based off of um you know the song placements in film and tv I'm okay sure. i i mean i would think i don't know i don't want to speak for him um and i mean and believe me everybody wishes they had more and i'm sure but I think you'd probably be hearing more from him if he wasn't. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> that's, that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, probably usually, true. that's usually the test of whether someone's doing all right. Yeah. Like, why are the replacements touring all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, right. Why, why is there a reunion replacement show? Yeah. It's really funny because recently I've been seeing, I don't know if you've experienced it, but like when you're around long enough, you see the arc of like, public approval and almost deification and then the the public like humiliation and on replacements are one of those bands that I see people diss them a lot like online and I'm kind of like I remember when like Paul Westerberg was God where it was like there was nobody cooler in like 1986 oh, yeah. like, there was no one cooler than Paul Westerberg and now it's oh that was it it was a it was a it was like a cartoon making fun of dad rock that was it. Oh. And it was basically, oh, that was it. It was, it was like a New Yorker cartoon. That was it. And it was like this girl, this teenage girl is talking to this other teenage girl. And she goes, for Father's Day, I'm going to let my dad explain to me Paul Westerberg's lyrics. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And I was just like, wow, I really observed this arc. You know what I mean? And that, I mean, I think... Are you aware of this whole dad rock phenomenon? I or? am. I yeah. am. Yeah. I mean, yeah, is the music you're into, are you a dad? I'm not. Right. So, you know, why should they call what you listen to dad rock? <laughs> but they but they do. And um, I even saw a 
pitchfork. Did you ever see that pitchfork um, animated little thing on Dad Rock? It was yes. So you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I was kind of like, okay, so yeah, I, you know, I'm a middle-aged straight white male and I like music and, and so, and I'm a dad. So I guess I make dad rock. And then, but then I thought, you know, maybe I should just embrace it. And I was like, me and Steve, we should just say, we're like, we're like the kings of dad rock. And I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Indie, just, indie dad rock. Yeah, we are like the, you know, we're like, no, we're the kings of dad rock. Like no, no other band has started trying to play dad rock. Like, That's right. Band? Like there are bands that end up dad rock, but no one's actually purposely said, we want to start a dad rock band. Well, right. we or anointed themselves the kings. Yeah, we are the kings of a, of, of a genre that no one wants to be. That's right. That's right. Well, cool, man. Thank you for your time. Thanks for doing this. I'm so stoked oh. about the record. I'm stoked to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. It's always, it's always great to uh, be in touch with you every time I make, make a record and I talk to you. It always makes me feel like somebody, at least one guy is listening. <laughs> well, cool, man. Thank you again. Love the record. And, and we'll get Steve on for next time. And, and we'll, have a, we'll have a chat with three of us. Sounds good. Thanks, buddy. Take it easy, buddy. that great matt keating what a cool guy love talking to matt and uh, i love his new album bastards of fine arts get it the album is called a good sign and i think it's a modern classic i'm going out on a limb you know what it's not even a limb i'm not even going out on a limb saying that it just is an instant classic no limb involved it's just simply a perfect album there's absolutely no risk in saying that it is the truth and uh, get it, bastardsoffineartsbandcampcom And don't forget to check out Matt Keating at mattkeating.com. Don't forget to check out me. All these things that you're not supposed to forget. Don't forget to check out me at alexgreenonline.com. It's uh, a website that is criminally um, non-updated. But I'll get there soon because I have a new book coming out. And I have to update that site and uh, bring it. Bring it to 2022. It's sort of locked in another era. So bear with me. One day that website will really impress people. <laughs> but not, probably not for a long time. Uh, there'll be some short gains. So do stop in and check it out. The easier way to do things is to follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Bombshell Radio can be found at bombshellradio.com and Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell every single person that you know. Tell people that you don't even know. See where that conversation takes you. Let's close the show with a longer listen to A Walk in the Park by the Bastards of Fine Arts. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I'll see you next time right here 
on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. <laughs>